He was a morbidly obese surgeon destined for an operating table and an early death. Now he's a rebel MD who is fabulously fit and fighting to make America healthy again. This is Stay Off My Operating Table with Dr. Philip Ovedia. Well, we're back. It's uh, the Stay Off My Operating Table podcast, and Dr. Ovedia has been somewhere. I don't know where. We didn't record last Thursday, Phil, because you were at a conference of some kind. So today's episode um, is recorded very, very close to the time that it's being released. I've got a busy day ahead of me to get this done. Tell us where you were, what you've been doing, and... Yes, indeed. Um, good to see you again. So uh, I was at the uh, Metabolic Health Summit uh, 2022 out in uh, beautiful Santa Barbara, California uh, over this oh, past uh, weekend. I feel so sorry for you. <laughs> yes. Well, you know, it's, besides being in California, it's it's all good, right? <laughs> Uh, um, but, uh, yeah, so, uh, that was a great, uh, summit, uh, obviously focused on metabolic health, um, a topic, uh, near and dear to our hearts as well as to the rest of our bodies. Uh, since we know metabolic health is the key to staying healthy overall. And, um, you know, I thought it was a great meeting, uh, met, uh, well, you know, met and, or, uh, got to see again many of the uh, thought leaders in the space, um, and uh, heard a, a few uh, interesting talks. Um, maybe some, um, I would say, nothing earth-shattering, but certainly some refinement of uh, you know many of the concepts around metabolic health uh, that we talk so much about. And uh, oh. so we could uh, dig into some of that. Well, without going into the the contents of the conference first, I'd like to just get, is this the first one you've been to or have there been more that you've been to before this? So this was the first uh, metabolic health summit that I have attended. I have been to okay. other, you know, low carb, uh, you know, other meetings that I think touch on the topic of metabolic health, Same basic uh, but this idea. is the first metabolic health summit. Um, and, you know, one of the things that's a little different about the metabolic health summit, I think, uh, as opposed to uh, perhaps some of the other meetings is that it brings together really all of the players in the metabolic health space. There were researchers there, you know, basic science researchers. Uh, there were clinicians like myself there. Uh, there were uh, patients or, you know, just general public wow. that's interested in the topic of metabolic health. And then there were a lot of the, um, you know, technology companies uh, and uh, other, you know, the industry uh, players in the metabolic health space as well. So um, it was a uh, quite a good collection, quite a good mix of people who were attending. Who's the, the who's the big players in in terms of industry? Um, I assume there was some kind of trade show where folks talked about what they did or sold what they did. Yeah. They, who's the big who's who's notable in that? 
Well, you know, so there are a couple of different aspects of even uh, the industry when you look at there is uh, what I would call the testing component. Uh, so, you know, these are things like uh, your home meters, uh, probably the biggest one in that front on that front is uh, called Keto Mojo, which is a uh, finger stick uh meter that can be used to measure both your uh, glucose levels as well as your ketone levels. Um, and, uh, you know, they, so this they, is they, a, a, a finger prick like diabetics do. Correct. Yeah, exactly. Like diabetics, but with the added component of measuring ketone levels, uh, in addition to your glucose levels. Um, is that, and, is that more effective than, uh, the little test strips you run your, through your urine? Uh, yes. Yeah. Blood levels of uh, ketone seem to be, you know, the most accurate way of measuring that. You, you can measure it in breath as well uh, and urine. Oh, yeah. um, the, the urine tests I really find are not very good. Um, the problem, you know, because that only really reflects actually how much ketones you're spilling into the urine and uh, people who have been in ketosis for longer periods of times that their bodies are actually utilizing the ketones. Sometimes the, the urine levels won't be very reflective. Oh, uh, so, so, okay. So I, I really don't recommend the uh, urine tests at all for uh, ketosis. I do recommend uh, that you check either blood tests uh, with the finger stick meters or um, the breath uh, tests seem to have some utility as well. And there's, there's some debate within the community, which one of those might be better. Uh, but there were testing companies uh, for both of them, probably the most prominent. Uh, as I was saying, so the um, leader in the breath uh, ketone uh, space seems to be uh, Biosense. And uh, they were at the meeting as well. So are these consumer the, products? Yes, those are both consumer products. Huh. What do you think about those? Um, I think they can be useful for people, um, you know, especially at the beginning of your metabolic health journey, let's say, and when you're learning, um, you know, what your body does and how it responds to some of these uh, interventions, uh, some of these changes that you're making. I think the uh, meters can be uh, useful. Um, okay. As we've talked about on the show, I am a big fan of the uh, continuous glucose monitors um, because those, you know, really show you in real time uh, what you're doing in, you know, what your body is doing in relationship to the foods that you're eating. Um, but can I, I think- these, Can I make an embarrassing com confession? Sure. I really don't remember you talking about continuous glucose monitors. Okay. Would you, maybe we well, maybe we haven't talked about it on the show. Which well, is I, I, I don't we know that we haven't, but I don't remember that we <laughs> talked about it. Yeah. So what's a continuous – I mean, obviously, it continuously monitors, monitors your glucose. But for a, a layman, what's it doing? What am I – is it something you wear? Is it a, a – how does this yeah. work? So it is a uh, – it's basically a patch that you wear, um, you know, about the size of uh, maybe uh, – uh, two quarters, uh, kind of stuck together. Um, like a nicotine patch. It would look similar to a nicotine patch. Um, Where do you wear and, it? Uh, you can either wear it on your arm or your at, or on your stomach, depending on the uh, manufacturer. They have two okay. different spots, and it actually so? has a 
very tiny needle built into it that, uh, you know, just goes under the skin. Um, you really, you don't feel it uh, when you're applying it uh, or when you're wearing it. And uh, you wear it for 10 to 14 days continuously. And it is uh, connected to an app, either a app on your phone or some of them have a standalone um, you know, display, uh, kind of like a beeper type thing. And it will show, it shows you what your glucose is, uh, continuously. So it's got like a Bluetooth transmitter in it or something. Uh, yeah. So technically one of them is Bluetooth. There, there are two major brands, uh, here in the United States. Uh, there's what's called the Dexcom G6, which is a, um, Bluetooth, uh, device that's continuously connected to your phone. And the other one is called the Freestyle Libre. Uh, that actually has a uh, NFC uh, chip in it. So you actually have to like scan it with gotcha. your phone every you know couple hours and it downloads the data uh, from the past few hours. Uh, so, but they both are those, um, are those consumer devices? They are consumer devices, but they do require a prescription from a physician. So you can't uh, just go buy one on your own. Uh, there are a couple of companies that are making them accessible to anyone. Uh, so there is one company called Levels, uh, Levels Health, um, which is the leader in the space. And they have a subscription program, basically, where they will, uh, you know, send you devices. Uh, they have a very nice app that kind of gathers the data and pairs it up with, you know, food and activity logs and, and uses some AI to uh, basically help you start to decipher uh, and understand the data. Um, or like I said, you can get a prescription from your physician for it. Um, I use it frequently with my patients and, um, you know, typically insurance won't cover the cost, uh, which is probably the biggest barrier to their use uh, for like a month worth of sensors, uh, depending on the brand. Uh, they usually are somewhere between two to three hundred dollars. Um, so, you know, that that becomes the limiting so this is something you actually you've recommended this you use it. Yes. Uh, so I, I use it with my patients, um, okay. you know, uh, cool. at, at, in various ways. Um, but it, it, it's, you know, it gives you real time feedback. You eat the food and then you see what your blood sugar does in response. You instantly to that. see what your blood sugar is doing. Yeah. And, and, wow. and you can see it over the, you know, you see the, the full response. So, uh, traditionally, you know, we would look at, uh, you know, a glucose level, like if you're just using a finger stick meter, for instance, right. um, you know, you might check it an hour after you eat or two hours after you eat or right before you eat. And then you sort of guessing the rest of, you know, what the curve looks like. Whereas with the continuous glucose monitor, you truly see uh, what the curve looks like. Wow. Okay. So, that seems... you know, the industries in the metabolic health space, certainly testing is a big is a big one. Um, and then there's, there's all like, you know, the home testing that you can do now, various labs, uh, you know, as many people know, you can, you know, get your own labs from many of these companies. Now you don't need a physician and you can test all sorts of various, you know, aspects, I would say that are relevant to metabolic health. These can be your basic blood work. These can be things like uh, gut health tests, 
uh, microbiome testing, uh, mineral, you know, levels, uh, electrolyte levels, all of that type of stuff. Uh, and then you can get into the DNA, you know, kind of uh, genetics uh, type uh, space as well. And there's sort of, there's a lot of uh, testing that has uh, popping up around that. Uh, so, okay. the, you know, though that was one component of the industries that were there. Certainly uh, supplements uh, are a big, you know, uh, player in this space. And there were lots of various supplement companies that were there. Um, what's your what's your take on that side of the of the industry? Yeah, you know, I don't in, want you to piss anybody off, but I'd really like your expert. Yeah, educated you know, my, opinion. My general take on supplementation is it should be uh, targeted and measure, measured. Um, so ideally, you know, there should be some uh, symptom that you're having that can then be tied to a deficiency that you can measure in some, you know, whatever it is, nutrient or mineral or, or something else. Uh, and then, you know, you supplement you see that the level improves and you see that your symptoms improve. Um, that's really the ideal way to use supplements. Unfortunately, that's not how supplements get used for the most part. And uh, a lot of it tends to be kind of uh, shotgun approaches uh, or, you know, just there'll be some piece of data, some study that says, you know, uh, taking X has shown some improvement, you know, maybe in animals or in human studies, and therefore, you know, everyone should be taking X, um, which, you know, doesn't necessarily right. translate. Um, and, you know, of course, there are a lot of unproven claims in the supplement world. There are a lot of yeah. things that are difficult to measure whether or not they're having any effect. Um, and, uh, but, you know, quite frankly, that's no different than the pharmaceutical world either, uh, if we're going to be honest. So, um, I, I don't distrust supplements any more or less than, uh, pharmaceuticals, I would say. I just think that they should all be used in, uh, you know, in a fairly measured, uh, measured approach. Um, so that's my, that's my general take on, on the supplement world. Are there... Are there, when you start working with somebody who's metabolically unhealthy, is there a situation like a majority of the time my patients need to supplement with X? Is there some X that's pretty common to everybody? Yeah. So I would say vitamin D is probably the most common, you know, supplement I end up recommending, uh, you know, vitamin D levels or uh, deficiency in vitamin D is uh, nearly ubiquitous, it seems. And, um, you know, it's, it's multifactorial. Um, metabolic health is certainly a big component of vitamin D and the patients that I work with that their metabolic health improves. We see their vitamin D levels improving and oh, we really? oftentimes end up, uh, you know, backing off their supplements or, or maybe not, you know, eliminating them. Okay, question. Are can you speculate as to why the vitamin D gets better? Is it because when you're getting metabolically healthy, you're actually outside, you're probably outside getting more sunshine or is it more complicated than that? I think it really uh I think it is a little bit more complicated than that. I think I think vitamin D um which, you know, uh, vitamin D 
actually isn't a vitamin. It's a hormone, it turns out. Um, really? Yes. Uh, one of the uh, misconceptions common in medicine. Um, a hormone. And it's actually a hormone. Uh, and so um, oh on Lord. some level, I think that it actually uh, reflects just how well our, you know, Met- metabolism is working, you know, how well our body oh. is making things that uh, it's supposed to be making. And when you improve your metabolic health overall, vitamin D is one of the thing, one of the areas that we can see that, uh, I'll be darned. you know, reflected. I, I've never heard that before. Okay. So, uh, you said testing's big, supplementation's big. Yeah, uh, there were certainly uh, the the food, uh, you know, industry. Although you know this obviously wasn't the mainstream, you know, food industry, but obviously yeah. but there's a big uh, cottage industry around you know metabolically healthy foods, keto foods, uh, and uh, you know, as people on the, as certainly. Anyone listening to this show knows, you know, I'm a fan of eating mostly whole real food. I realize that there are some times that, you know, you need some hacks to help with that. And perhaps some of these, you know, foods can be useful in those situations. Um, But, you know, you do still have to be careful because, you know, these uh, foods that are labeled Keto is probably the most common label these days that we'll see on these things because it's sort of the most popular dietary plan that's out there and uh food that's labeled as keto can just be repackaged junk food um with undesirable ingredients uh so you do have to be careful about that stuff uh but you know there was also one of the large uh meat uh uh companies that was there uh US wellness meats that uh you know ships uh what i consider to be you know pretty high quality stuff uh throughout the country and and they were one of the big sponsors of the event so i was certainly pleased well, that's to nice see to that yep yep and uh you know various times during the uh breaks you were able to go out and get get meat samples so no no complaints about that certainly seriously you they had samples Yes, they they had oh samples God. they were handing out. So oh, you know, that one, just sounds fantastic. <laughs> just to contrast, uh, you know, with your standard, uh, you know, certainly the medical conferences that I'm used to appear, you know, that I'm used to attending, and and really the conferences, you know, that I think in any industry people will, uh, uh, you know, are used to attending. Uh, there was uh, not a donut in sight at this meeting. Uh, you know, all of I'll the foods that, that were that was unusual. Right. Yeah, the foods that were out during breaks were. Um, you know, there was a lot of coffee, a lot of water uh, being consumed. Uh, I didn't see any soda. Uh, is another uh, you know noticeable difference from standard meetings, um, and uh, you know, obviously, a lot of these food companies had samples out, but uh, there were there was meat as well. And, uh, there were some, uh, uh, you know, at, at one of the welcome oh, reception the it. first night, there was a good, uh, selection of meats and cheeses out. Um, and so, uh, the food that was served at the meeting was consistent with the messaging of the meeting, um, which, uh, again, you know, at most medical meetings I go to that are supposedly there figuring out 
you know, to help people to be healthy. Uh, and they're just serving straight up junk food, including donuts and soda. Um, it was nice to be at a meeting that, uh, that wasn't the case. Wow. Oh, okay. Well, that's cool. I can imagine there's a, I'm imagining, um, there's a kind of positive peer pressure in an environment like that, where even if you're, even if you occasionally indulge in some not, not so healthy things, just knowing that everybody around you, you know, adheres to the same, the same message. It just makes it a lot easier not to not to stray from the the straight narrow path. <laughs> yeah, I would I would certainly uh, say that's the case in, in both the positive and the negative way. You know, you have the reinforcement yeah. of people who you know are doing same things as you, and uh, probably a little bit of shame, <laughs> I guess, if someone were to whip out a candy bar there. Um, I suspect <laughs> it would not would not go over well. I remember um, years ago, long time ago, many, many lifetimes ago, I had a, uh, a software company. I, I started a, a fitness club management software company, and we used to go to fitness club or fitness expos, fitness conferences. And prior to getting into this business, I sold dental office management software. So I went from the dental industry to the fitness industry. I'd go, you know, I I had been going to these dental conferences and I started going to these fitness conferences and oh my God, the difference was like night and day. The people in the fitness conference were, I, I, I can, I think I can say without fear of being corrected that at least back in that time, which was the the mid nineties, you didn't get the brightest people in the world in the fitness industry, but they were definitely the happiest. I loved going to those conferences because those people were fit. They were, they were healthy. They ate right. They took care of their bodies. They cared how they looked. Um, it was all just being around them made you want to be better. Just being around compared that to these dental conferences and it was like a, a i don't know a gathering of more of of morticians or something it was just oh it was not good apologies to any dentists that i've offended or fitness people but i i imagine it was the same thing the i imagine it was a very positive environment from yes, that standpoint I, yeah this this was a very positive uh environment and that's why i enjoy going to these meetings because you know, again, these are the people who are um, really doing things to solve people's problems. You know, as we talk about, you know, metabolic health is really the key to making people better. And rather than just trying to manage, you know, their disease and, and keep them from getting more sick, which is, you know, largely the focus of the uh healthcare industry and, you know, of the medical meetings that I would go to in the past, you know, this is really about, you know, it's the realization that we do have a big problem that's all around us. Um, It's a realization that we are fighting 
um, against a number of, you know, factors that, that go against the messaging, you know, that comes out of these meetings. Um, but, you know, we know that this is uh, benefiting people. Uh, you know, again, this meeting had plenty of people attending it who, you know, were patients who have uh, benefited greatly from this uh, and the clinicians who are taking care of these people and have seen, you know, what would be called, you know, somewhat miraculous uh, recoveries, you know, with a focus on metabolic health. And it, that goes a, across a very wide spectrum. You know, we had sessions that touched on um, mental and uh, psychiatric health uh, there were sessions that uh, touched, of course, on heart disease and, you know, diabetes. Uh, there was a session uh, from a, uh, you know, practitioner who is working with spinal cord injury patients and has really? been seeing benefits from, you know, focusing on metabolic health, um, you know, rehabilitation. What, kind of what was that? What kind of benefits? Um, just, you know, in terms of their recovery and, uh being able to actually see, um, you know, and again, Earl, are we early talking like nerve regeneration or something? Nerve regeneration and uh, recovery of function for these patients with spinal cord injury. Um, now, and, what does that uh, imply? Well, you know, again, when we go back to the uh, original, uh, you know, if we step back and we think about what the ketogenic diet was originally developed for, and that was to treat children with epilepsy. Um, you know, it is not a stretch to say that it must be having some effect on, you know, nerve function and brain function. And so, uh, you know, we can, uh, you know, <sighs> it's not too far a leap to start to think about that if you're trying to recover from a nerve or a brain injury of some sort, that uh, ketogenic diets might have benefits. Um, the anti-inflammatory properties of, uh, you know, metabolic uh, health uh, and metabolic uh, diets, you know, probably plays some role in recovery from injury as well. And, uh, and then there's just the, you know, being able to better build strength and, and muscle and, you know, uh, which yeah, that um, makes sense. metabolic health uh, diets have a component of as well. So, um, you know, it's just... As I said, it, it really was a pretty wide spectrum of disease, diseases and, and injuries and stuff that were touched on during the meeting and um, that people are having um, some success uh, utilizing these metabolic health uh, interventions for. So can I, I'm interested, I, I'm thinking about a good friend uh, from years ago who was a, a paraplegic um and she tried all kinds of exotic um remedies to try to get healing into her spinal cord i think it was a c4 whatever whatever makes you a paraplegic c4 break um so that comment about working with spinal injuries really triggered something because this woman I mean, the things she went through, you'd, it'd blow your mind, the things she attempted to do. Um, and I really admire her for the sheer um, endurance, uh, perseverance, stick-to-itiveness, stubborn insistence to continue to try to walk. Um, 
that uh, combined with what you said about uh, uh, childhood epilepsy. So is, is there any, do we have any idea of the mechanism of epilepsy from the fact that a ketogenic diet helps to treat it? Do we, is there a model for what's actually happening? When, um, with, I think I make, I think the question is stated clearly enough. <laughs> yeah. So it seems Am I making to, sense? yeah, it does. And it seems to deal with, you know, the, um, I guess I would explain it this way. You know, we know that the brain, brain cells can utilize two energy sources. They can use glucose or they can use ketones. Um, And there seems to be uh, a alteration, I guess, in the way that they may use sugar versus ketones uh, in, you know, epilepsy uh, and some other, you know, neurologic conditions. So shifting that metabolism towards primary use of ketones uh, stabilizes the functioning of the brain cells and, uh, you know, specifically uh, the cells that uh, are uh, the triggers for seizures um, is is my understanding of it. I just got this picture, this comparison of the difference between uh, a top fuel dragster and a and a over the road truck, a big rig. Um, one uses this highly, highly combustible type of fuel that burns really hot and really fast, ethanol, I guess, and another uses something that burns pretty cold and burns a really long time. Um, I'm, I'm just wondering if maybe the difference between the, uh, the glycogen and the, the ketones is similar to that. One burns really hot, super efficient, very little waste, but takes a quite a toll on the engine. Whereas the other isn't particularly efficient, but burns cool and runs a long time. And I don't know. Yeah, no, that that's actually see the model. Does that make any sense? It is. It's 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 an analogy that does get used uh, in the metabolic health world. Um, you know, in terms of the ketones versus uh, glucose metabolism, and of course, we know that if you you know uh, put you know high performance race car fuel into a uh, you know semi truck, you're you're not going to uh, that's not going to work very well. And many people think that, you know, our brains, our hearts, our bodies in general might be the same way. And that if we're putting the wrong type of fuel, you know, even if it's high quality fuel, uh, you're not going to get uh, good results from that. And uh, so I think that that does, uh, you know, that analogy is applicable. Huh. I'm going to end up. I have a feeling I'm going to wake up in the middle of the night thinking about this one. All right, so let's get to the meat of it. Uh, what's the best thing you took out of the the conference, and uh, has it? How has it changed how you you viewed uh, the metabolic health industry and what's happening? Yeah, you know, really, my biggest takeaway from it was just you know what I was touching on the 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 breadth of 
issues that are being addressed with metabolic health improvement these days, um, you know, just continues to expand. And it really, you know, just reinforces um, my belief that, you know, this, this should be our default. Um, you know, this pretty much should be uh, at least part of the armamentarium, if not the primary thing in the armamentarium for the vast majority of, of you know, diseases that we're facing. Wow. And, um, you know, again, one of the things I didn't talk about um, was, you know, that uh, there was talk, uh, you know, about using ketogenic therapies or, or you know, metabolic uh, health uh, as part of uh, cancer treatment. And again, you know, we do have wow. data to show benefits there. And it's the type of thing where you step back and say, why don't we do this? You know, not saying that you shouldn't do the other stuff, you know, um, that, uh, you know, you shouldn't be doing uh, traditional, you know, chemotherapy or radiation for cancer. But why aren't we using these things as an adjunct, at least uh, in this, uh, you know, more uh, in the uh, cancer space? And well, so, I gotta, I gotta ask you to expand on that, and and the reason I do that is because I've heard of more than one case, people that I know, either directly or uh, at you know one jump removed, who've gotten a cancer diagnosis and have instantly um, decided to eliminate all meats from their diet, go hardcore vegan, um, under the belief that a vegan diet will alkalize the blood or I don't know what the thinking is. What you're saying is uh, a ketogenic diet is, has some evidence of being beneficial in the treatment of cancer. Did I understand that correctly? Yeah. So there have been some, uh, you know, small studies to date that have shown that for certain types of cancer. Uh, but, you know, kind of on the larger conceptual uh, uh, part of this is that um, there there were basically two schools of thought uh, as to what caused cancer, you know, as we were going through the early days of cancer research. And uh, one of them was basically that cancer is a metabolic disease and that it's an alteration of the metabolism of the cells uh, that allow them to be to become cancerous. Um, you know, it is, as its most basic, uh, you know, sort of definition, cancer basically means that a cell is growing abnormally and no longer responds to signals to stop growing uh, right. and stop, you know, dividing. And so, and there was, uh, you know, Many scientists uh, early on, you know, 1920s, 1930s, 1940s, who believed that cancer was a metabolic disease. Uh, the most well-known is probably a scientist, a uh, German scientist by the name of Otto Warburg. Uh, and, uh, you know, there is a uh, basically a whole Warburg uh, theory of cancer. Um, and, uh, you know, it it was actually the prevailing thought around cancer for for a long time. Uh, and then this other theory came up basically showing that it's uh, DNA damage or, or, you know, genetic damage uh, to the cell. And uh, that became the prevailing theory, uh, you know, more recently over the past 40 or 50 years. 
although there has been a resurgence in interest in the metabolic theory of cancer. Well, that's not... Those aren't mutually exclusive, are they? No, they're not mutually exclusive. Um, We know epigenetics is a thing. Yeah. It seems to me like if you are engaging in some sort of activity that that, uh, has an epigenetic response, that it's entirely reasonable that one of the responses could be uh, damage to the DNA, not a positive epigenetic response, obviously, but am, am am I thinking right there? Um, yeah, no, I would agree that the two aren't mutually exclusive. It just, you know, there became a singular focus, I would say, on the sort of uh, DNA uh, genetic on aspects fixing of it cancer, at the genetic level, fixing it at the genetic level, targeting therapies. Whereas, if the if the if the genesis of this problem, in many cases, is metabolic, treating it at the genetic level isn't is you're actually it's the wrong level of analysis as jordan peterson would say yes it's not that there's not a genetic component to it but that's not where the problem has to be fixed in order to fix make the uh okay right and it may not be the root cause uh so you know uh has there been a rise in cancers over the last 40 years concomitant with the rise in metabolic ill health uh yes I, i should know the answer to this question but i don't yeah, so so cancer, um, you know, has risen to become the number two killer uh, in the United States every year. You know, behind behind heart disease, uh, the overall incidence of cancer seems to be imp- uh, increasing. Um, now, within different types of cancers, you can see different trends, uh, but overall, cancer uh, is becoming more common. And again, um, you know, it becomes a discussion as to uh, why that is, um, you know, along, along those lines. I got to tell you, after our yeah. conversation with Dr. Linskis last week, um, I think the answer to, you know, the, the answer that springs to mind for me immediately as to why is the incidence of cancer going up is, because it's more profitable. Well, um, you know, obviously we do diagnose it more. Uh, that's kind of a separate uh, question, separate issue. Uh, but again, you know, when you look at why would cancer be increasing, you know, you could, I guess, come up with two theories. One is it must be something in the environment. Uh, or the other is that for some reason, our uh, genetics are changing uh, to make it, you know, kind of more prominent. And again, it seems less likely that on the time scale we're talking about, you know, 50 to 100 years, uh, that, you know, something would have fundamentally changed in human, it does seem uh, a you know, stretch. human genetics. Uh, and so you have to say, okay, it must be, it, it's highly likely to be something in the environment. Now we can argue about what that may be, and the answer might be all right. of the above. You know, is it the food we're eating? Is it the water we're drinking? Is it the air we're breathing? Um, and uh, likely contributors from all of the above, as I said. Uh, but you know, again, as as obvious as that may seem, and. I would say, you know, most doctors wouldn't even argue against that there's some environmental, you know, thing that's causing cancer to be more uh, um, prevalent. 
it still doesn't get most doctors to say, well, then maybe, you know, one of the primary ways that we should be going about this is, you know, changing the <laughs> environment, changing the food that we are eating uh, and uh, what we're drinking and and all of that. So um, it, it just it's another one of those disconnects that I see, uh, you know, all too commonly in medicine. And then, like I said, you know, when we when we look at, you know, there's a very good mechanistic reason to think that, you know, metabolic therapies can have benefit in cancer. We have clinical data showing it. We have lots of, uh, you know, um, people who report this, uh, you know, outside of the sort of clinical scientific trials. Um, We have increasing evidence of all of this. And, you know, again, what there's very little, if any, harm to, you know, eating in a metabolically healthy way. Um, right. You know, so why not try it? Why not try and, it? And like I said, not saying that you should do that only and you shouldn't do the other, you know, uh, traditional uh, treatment approaches. But as an adjunct, I think it certainly makes sense to be, uh, you know, looking at this more carefully, more uh, more than we are. Um, are you familiar with the story of uh, uh, All Our Mice Are Broken? Uh, Brett Weinstein, er, I'm sorry, Eric Weinstein did a podcast oh, a couple of years ago where he talked about his brother's research into the nature of of lab rats and how they're how they have genetically drifted over the generations to the point that when pharmaceuticals are tested on them, they show no ill effects. Whereas if they're tested on a, a mouse, they pull out of the, out of a field. Are you familiar with that, that story? Yeah, I do have a little bit of familiarity with that. Um, one of the statements that I think I heard there, and I, I wanted to ask you about this was that, um, all mice will get cancer if they live long enough. And, and they went into the, the genetic reasons for that. Um, like cancer is just the default end state of any organism that lives long enough. Like eventually everything breaks down and it turns into cancer. Is that, did I understand that right? Is that true? What? Yeah. So I, 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 have certainly heard the same theory, uh, you know, and, and there are people who even say it about humans, you know, and one of the arguments for why we see more cancer these days is because we live longer. We're living um, longer. Again, I'm not, not quite so sure about that, you know, because, uh, um, you know, it, it, it's not actually clear that we live longer, I guess I would say. Um, our average lifespan has increased but that's largely because we've eliminated or, or minimized, you know, infant mortality and uh, trauma and infectious diseases at a young age. And when the you things kinda, that are killing people young yeah. are largely being dealt with, therefore, the average is going up without. I, I get it. I understand yeah. the math. Yeah. So not doing you know, a good job of saying it, but okay. but it basically comes down to, you know, do we really think that cancer is more prevalent in a 70 year old today than, you know, let's say a hundred years ago. Uh, and, and it's not 
not quite as clear on that. But anyway, um, one of the other interesting things that, you know, kind of plays into that whole, uh, you know, uh, lab, you know, lab rats will, lab mice will end up ultimately with cancer is that the food that lab animals get uh, is actually some of the worst processed food that you can imagine. Um, you know, this this actually becomes a big issue in uh, when they try and do nutritional studies on lab animals, you know, and then translating that to humans is that the baseline, you know, chow uh, that uh, lab animals get is just a concophony of vegetable and seed oils and, you know, highly processed grains and uh, it, it's really, yeah, horrible stuff. So, one of the reasons maybe that it seems that, uh, you know, uh, lab animals that live long enough will get cancer is because they're just eating garbage their whole uh, <laughs> existence, um, which is uh, which is interesting. But, yes, it is, you know, it is a problem that we may be losing the ability to, you know, adequately study these things in the lab anymore uh, because the conditions are such that, you know, and I guess you could say similar to humans, you know, if all the mice are sick, it hard it it becomes hard to you know uh, find healthy mice to study and to talk about all, what's if, normal. Yeah. yeah, and if all the humans are sick, as we have just talked about, you know, eighty eight percent of us are metabolically unhealthy. Uh, you know, we end up with a similar problem in humans that it's hard to you know find the healthy ones to actually uh, study some of these things on. Wow. Okay. Um, what was the, uh, who was the keynote speaker and what was, what, what art or, yeah. Who was the keynote speaker? Um, well, so the, um, you know, the meeting was organized, uh, by a, uh, primarily by a researcher, uh, by the name of Dom D'Agostino. Um, he is, uh, actually out in uh, Florida, not too far from me. Uh, and so I've been a big fan of his for, Many reasons that included, uh, but uh, he he organized the meeting. Uh, Rhonda Patrick, um, who probably many in the audience are going to be familiar with, uh, was uh, you know one of the keynote speakers. Um, and um, as I said, it really was just a good mix of you know there were some high level researchers uh, talking about you know kind of very basic science you know lab research. And then uh, a number of uh, clinicians, uh, you know, speaking as well. Um, and uh, it was just a very, very interesting worthwhile. collection, very worthwhile meeting uh, for me personally. All right. Anything, uh, anything else that, that especially our listeners would be interested in doing a little bit of follow up on as a result of what you, you, yeah. So, there. you know, one of the topics we've sort of touched on, uh, you know, has been the uh, interplay between metabolic health and mental health. And, uh, you know, there were some uh, pretty interesting uh, sessions on that. And uh, actually, we're going to be having uh, Dr. Christopher Palmer, uh, who is a uh, psychiatrist in the uh, Massachusetts. Um, and he was one of the speakers at the conference. He's going to be coming on as a guest um, I think, uh, 
somewhere somewhere down the line. I know we have him on our book guest list, so uh, more to come on that. Uh, but that that was probably one of the things that you know I found very interesting. Um, the discussion between the impact of, uh, you know, metabolic health on mental health. And, uh, they, it was touched on in a number of different ways, you know, uh, including the use of metabolic, uh, therapies in people with, you know, fairly advanced, uh, psychiatric illnesses. Um, there is the addiction component of it. And, uh, you know, one of the, uh, there was some data presented around, um, you know, the benefit of this, uh, of metabolic health therapies when you're dealing with addictions, um, like, you know, alcohol and drug uh, addictions. And then, of course, there's the, you know, always present sort of psychologic component to what we eat and why we eat it. And, uh, you know, that was another sort of interesting uh, aspect of the discussion as well. <laughs> I can imagine that would be uh we should, we should see if we, I'd love to get a, a, an expert in that and just pick their brain, learn more about that. All right. Well, I feel like I've got a good, some tasty stuff. I end up, I always end up with more questions and answers when, when we do these kinds of things, I want to know more about this, that the, the whole epilepsy thing, treating epilepsy with, with a ketogenic diet just kind of blows my mind. Um, Maybe we need to uh, get, get you out to a meeting with me next time. Sounds like a plan. I love it. He would, he all would, right. I think have a very well, interesting perspective on it all. Oh, I'd love it. Especially if it's uh, not Phoenix in the summer. <laughs> oh boy. All right. Well, I guess that's a wrap for today. Um, as always, this is the Stay Off My Operating Table podcast with Dr. Philip Ovedia. You can follow Dr. Ovedia on Twitter at iFixHearts. And uh, you can reach him on his, uh, his, his metabolic health consulting practices at Ovedia. Let's try this again. OvediaHeartHealth.com. I know this. I've done this 5,000 times. Um, and most importantly, I'd recommend you go to ifixhearts.co and take Dr. Ovedia's metabolic health quiz. Find out if you're one of that 12 out of 100 people who are actually metabolically healthy. Be worth your time. And uh, I guess we'll talk to you next time. Chances are you wouldn't be listening to this podcast if you didn't need to change your life and get healthier. So take action right now. Book a call with Dr. Ovedia's team. One small step in the right direction is all it takes to get started. Contact us at ifixhearts.com slash talk. That's ifixhearts.com slash talk.